So before the episode begins, I just wanted to remind any listeners uh, that if you are not familiar with the Enneagram personality sorter or the Myers-Briggs personality indicator, um, please check out our bonus episodes on those two subjects and it will all make a lot more sense. Enjoy the show. So this is an impromptu episode. We're going, my husband and I are going to discuss Mrs. Doubtfire. This is Dusty. Say hi. Hi. Um, Dusty is an INTP and a five. Not that he cares, but that's accurate. Anyway, so we decided to talk about what movie? <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire. Okay, why did you want to specifically talk about this movie? Mrs. Doubtfire has been on my mind a lot recently. I rewatched several portions of Mrs. Doubtfire as an adult, probably 20 years since I had seen it last. In the midst while I was investing other things about psychology, philosophy, religion, and all these things came to mind that weren't apparent to me at all when I was a child. In fact, I kind of view all the characters in the completely opposite way as I did when I was a, a young person. Um, what year did it come out? Do you remember? 93, 94, I think. Okay. I remember we owned it. My brother and I, we watched it on VHS. I think we owned it as well. Good for us. Okay, so how did you view him when you were a child? And then I'll tell you how I viewed him. So when I was a child, I absolutely rooted for Daniel. I felt that he had been thrust into his position unfairly, that he was completely misunderstood. He just wanted everyone to be happy, and his family was broken apart unwillingly. Um, and that Pierce Brosnan's character was this very, uh, pernicious, suave, um, you know, loathsome, slimy character trying to insert himself into the family's life. And he was pulling out all the stops possible to prevent that from happening. And that was why he took on this Mrs. Doubtfire persona. So you, you viewed him as a hero? Absolutely. No, I did too. I thought that he was the hero of the movie. Um, and I'm not saying he isn't. And his wife, what was her name in the movie? Miranda. Oh, yeah. Miranda and Daniel. Yeah, she was such a killjoy to me. I just, you know, I think I was probably 12 when I first saw it. So I was like, wow, she sucks. Yes, I agree. I thought she was very uptight, high-strung. Actually, I still feel that way as an adult, except I, I understand how she may have, have become that way. It might have been in virtue of this relationship that she had with Daniel. I imagine they probably got together because they felt they complemented some missing part of one another. She gave him order and and constancy. and, and Grounding. Grounding, and, and she... Excuse me, he provided her with some um, exuberance, playfulness. Spontaneity. Um, exactly, yeah. Yeah, because I can see they are polar opposites. And, you know, I'm going to bring my little Myers-Briggs stuff into this. Mm -hmm. She was absolutely, to me, the classic ISTJ character <clears throat> where it was, you know, she was very serious and dutiful in his childlike nature finally you know irresponsibility i mean in the birthday scene those farm animals i mean of course as a kid we all thought this was the most awesome father on earth but it, when you try to imagine it as an adult <laughs> you have like 
donkeys or ponies peeing in your your nice house in San Francisco on Steiner Street. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds it's like a nightmare and she just like had had enough, you know? So she is definitely like on the Enneagram of type one. They're very very methodical, dutiful. They're very much about right and wrong and they don't appreciate anybody who screws around too much. You and, what, know? and what would Daniel be? Okay, so unfortunately, I should say not unfortunately, but Robin Williams is an ENFP, was an ENFP in real life and a seven in real life, like yours truly. Oh. And he played a lot of characters which were also the same. And this is one example. There's absolutely no doubt he's an ENFP, which, you know, were very childlike in some ways. And him him having this idea in the first place of dressing basically as a, you know, in drag, as an <laughs> this was a very creative idea that only somebody like an ENFP could come up with and execute brilliantly. And he was a seven, uh, which I... You know, they're the eternal optimists. Oh, I lost my children. No problem. I'm just going to get some fake boobs and pretend I'm an old lady from England. Mm. And Pierce Brosnan's character, what would he be? To me, he's absolutely an Enneagram 3, which is very much about success, uh, projecting an image of success at all times, um, very image conscious. Uh, and I'd have to think about it with the Myers-Briggs, but probably something extroverted extroverted judger thinker maybe feeler i don't know i have to think about that one but for sure a three in the enneagram where they're very much about looking good at all times what i really like what i'm thinking about when i'm saying that is the scene where he's hit where robin williams or mrs doubtfire hits him with the lime and he kind of does that little head cock to try to recover his his uh what do you call it his dignity mm-hmm yeah, so he's very much about appearances, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have like a heart, you know. Well, that that scene in particular is the one where you find out that he's much more than just a um, than he than, than just an image than you know somebody who's just sort of trying to project this image out into the world to try and recapture this this woman that he was um, infatuated with long ago. Because he has that conversation with the bartender, doesn't know that anybody else is listening, where he expresses that he has genuine love and affection for this woman and for her children, and that he just wants to give them the best life possible, especially because they were so thoroughly shattered by her relationship with her ex-husband. He had a romantic interest in her from the beginning, and he grew to love her children, and he saw himself as wanting to be a part of their family. And you do see... You know, in when I was younger, when I was a kid, he was clearly the villain of the piece. And as an adult, he's he actually is uh, much more of a protagonistic role um, because he really doesn't have to put up with all of this. He does put up with like constant verbal abuse and and by who from Mrs. Doubtfire. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's not verbally it's abusive. It's not verbal abuse. It's You're shade. passive aggressive. There's a lot of shade. She clearly doesn't like him. She clearly tries to insert himself between her and um and Miranda. Um and <laughs> she even she even insinuates he's got a little thing. Right, and he takes it all in stride, you know. Even like the head cock is like a perfect example of how he is. He he'll just there's there's something that's clearly affecting 
his um his dignity his his you know his self-respect and he just sort of weathers it and you know smiles and, and moves on because he sees a larger goal behind it and maybe that's that's you know an inference towards why he's so successful in the first place yeah and i mean it does say a lot for him that he doesn't react with rage or even just some mild anger of course the cynical side of me thinks that just because he confided that he or i wouldn't say even confided just because he tells some bartender at his little club that he finds her so amazing and her kids so you know like he wants to take care of them to me that doesn't mean that he's in it for the long haul well there's more of it too so for example it's miranda's birthday he doesn't take just her out to dinner. He insists on bringing the whole family and Mrs. Doubtfire out to dinner. Yeah, but I also, I'm not convinced by that, you see. he okay. does. I, I, I think you'd have to see a few years out if that would still hold true. Okay, well, with all the <laughs> sequels and franchise continuations, perhaps there will be a Mrs. Doubtfire too. I doubt it. Nobody wants to see a movie about him, let's be real. You wouldn't and, watch a movie a about just him. A holographic Mrs. Doubtfire. Or a CGI Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, that makes me sad. <laughs> okay, so continue. So how has... Okay. Well, okay, so as an adult, as I was saying, there's a lot of things. I just talked about Pierce Brosnan's character. I talked about Robin Williams' character. And then, of course, you see the children reflect certain aspects of them. The oldest daughter is much more like her mother. The middle one's like the father. And then the the youngest one's a synthesis of the two. And it's sort of, they have all the adult characters, they're trying to win this this young girl because she has sort of like this innocence and, and love, this purity amongst all their jadedness that, you know, they're, they're hoping to claim for themselves. The little one, you mean? Mm-hmm. What was her name? I don't remember. Maddie? Maddie. Yeah. And she goes, why would you want mommy to die? <laughs> <laughs> um. There's a lot of really interesting psychology in this movie, too, that I didn't realize. A lot of it comes from Carl Jung. So Carl Jung believed um, in application to this particular movie in something called a persona, which is sort of the person or the mask that you need to have um, when you're interacting with, with the public, with the world. And this is sort of a projection it's a more idealized um, version of yourself. The actual you, who you are, is vulnerable and insecure and, and what have you. It's not something that you feel the world wants to see. That's the person that you know you are in private. So he felt the person that you project with everyone, even your intimate loved ones, is not really you. Um, like a facade. A facade, exactly. And the thing is, Daniel's character doesn't have a facade in the beginning. That's really who he is. And it would benefit him, actually, to develop that persona because then he could probably have a lot smoother sailing in his life. And and so it's interesting that when he becomes Mrs. Doubtfire, he actually brings, through some bizarre way, some order into his life. <laughs> That's um, true. That's why that woman, his caseworker, like, he was able to clean his life up mm -hmm. when he became her. Right. Um, the other um, Jungian, um, I don't know what to call them, not belief, but 
topic, I guess you could say, um, that's apparent in Mrs. Doubtfire. So Carl Jung believed that everybody has what's called an anima and an animus. It's kind of like a modernized take on um, the Taoists yin and yang. So he believed that everyone had a female aspect and a male aspect, and that both, or not female and male, but they're more like traits that are most commonly seen in females and, and, in, and in, of course, in males. And he felt that trying to suppress one or the other... In, in any given person? In any given person, yeah. And that trying to suppress the female or the male aspects because you feel that that will cause disapproval amongst your peer group or your social group is what leads to some mental health issues and and general unhappiness. Um, so it's really interesting because even though he is definitely, you know, like an overgrown boy with Peter Pan syndrome. Daniel. When I, Daniel, when I found it very, when I was watching, I found it very clear he's also suppressing these more female characteristics, these softer characteristics. In in the beginning? In the beginning, correct. And so when he becomes Mrs. Doubtfire, it's like he's letting the, I think it's the aunt, the anima is the female one. He's letting that one grow, and it actually brings balance um, into who he is as a person. Oh, well, there's a Myers-Briggs aspect to this too, actually, because in everybody has a thinking and feeling part of them, mm -hmm. and you really have to use both as like a kind of, they have to balance each other. People who are primarily thinkers need to respect and pit and and listen to the feeler aspect of it so that it's balanced. So it makes it makes sense in in a you know in a modern psychology way as well. Which of course, you know, Myers Briggs is tied to Jung anyway. Isn't it like loosely based off some Jungian psychology? Psychological not not concepts? loosely at all. It's it's very much he was very much of of like a godfather of the Myers Briggs. It's just that some people in the later on took it and ran with it mm. yeah That's um interesting yeah and i think that i'm not really sure if i agree with you that everybody needs to adopt some type of facade i think what you mean is that everybody needs to have an identity or at least to create or not create but just to have like a part of them that they it's just like a part of like being a grown-up well, I'm just restating Jung's um, philosophy on things. Well, he's saying kind of like, are you, I, I kind of, I guess I don't know if I'm clear. It sounds like build a shell so that you 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 survive better in the world. Kind of. It's it's not, see, when a lot of people hear that, they think that what Jung is saying is that he's talking about being fake or being artificial. He's not saying that at all. He, what he's saying is that there are certain rules both literal and unspoken and um and requirements and, and standards that exist in society social norms social norms and what have you and because they exist even though you may not personally agree with them or feel comfortable with them on a fundamental level you still must interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis and so um interacting with the world necessitates that you create or that you develop these outward qualities that you utilize principally when you're 
interacting with with the world at large. He's just basically saying, "Grow up." Kind of. It's it's kind of like, um, but that that's not really you at the core of your being. So, for example, you could be a person that really hates confrontation. You want to be left alone. Your ideal world is to live, you know. Completely at home with your books and your cats and your hot tea and your Netflix. So basically, you, you seek comfort. No, I don't have. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> Not the cats part. But at the else. same time, in your public life, you're an attorney. So how do you balance this two? You have an you have a persona that sort of uh, works as an intercessor between your private and your public life. Well, I think that that's where the conflict lies in this movie and also with like someone like Robin Williams himself because of what's in Myers-Briggs is called introverted feeling, which is his secondary function in mine as well, of course. We already said that. But it's a, it, the nickname for it is authenticity. And so some ENFPs, or I would say most ENFPs, live with a conviction and in the movie, I would argue that this is the truth for him too, a conviction of having to be true to who they who, who they are, no matter what. And even if that butts up against, you know, normal society norms, like to him, he, you know, having farm animals in your house is a prime example of somebody who just really doesn't give a crap about what's right or wrong in terms, like what's okay. So I think that that's part of the, crux of this story is that he's not interested he's a rebel that's part of an ENFP's character and the seven as well is that we rebel against what would you call the just the you know the fact the ruling of him not being able to see his kids he had to find a way to still be himself to to basically flex be flexible do you know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. like to to change things so that he could still get what he needed and be authentic in his life as a loving father because yeah a lot of the things he was doing in the movie before and after he became Mrs. Doubtfire he's not thinking about how this is endangering everybody he could be locked up for I, I imagine couldn't he be in trouble with the law for what he was doing I mean it's probably um I mean, you know, those questions are brushed over in the film, but, you know, I mean, how was he paid? Did he have a fake social security <laughs> number? <laughs> you know? Can you pay me in cash, dear? <laughs> <laughs> My husband was a bit of a criminal. <laughs> right. Um, certainly he would have lost all parental rights. That's what I'm saying, like. And he did, remember? In yeah. the film, he, they were like, you got issues, and now you don't even have visitation. So, right. you know. And, and the thing to remember, too, is that, I mean, I work in social services, so um, this will probably go over most people's heads. But you're not assigned a caseworker just willy-nilly. You're assigned a case manager because there is something concerning that's happening in your life and it requires outside intervention to help you navigate it properly. So when the court assigned him uh, to case management, it was because they saw something unstable in him that needed to be handled um, 
because there was some feeling, I imagine, that he was, was going unstable. to put his, yeah, he was going to put his family in further danger. Well, I'm sure that Miranda had a pretty good lawyer and let them know, like, my husband is basically 13. Well, that's that's talked about in the movie too. She provides almost all of the income. Um, oh he, yeah, he keeps firing, getting fired because of his conscience. Which is another ENFP thing. Right. And he only does, he'll only take work that seems um, uh, fun to him, basically, which is voice acting or something relating to entertainment. Um, and it's a constant source of frustration, of frustration for, her. for her because she, she feels that she's working super hard to maintain this family and her husband's pissing it all away because he doesn't understand the value of money. Uh, that's true. I, I, I haven't seen it in so many years, so these are little things that I'd forgotten about. Yeah. And um, so I imagine, and this is pretty common in family court, that in order to continue seeing his kids, he needs to demonstrate that he's mentally healthy, that he's self-sufficient, that... He can hold a job down. Yeah, he can hold a job and they, apartment down. They specifically can, mentioned that. Right. And he can basically clean his, his own house, you know? Yeah, that's that's Maintain, implied in the no. movie as well. When she's looking around and she's checking, she's doing the home visit. And she's checking things off and you know holding things up and sneering at them, which is not fair for anybody to do in an ENFP's home. It's just not fair, right? Well, I mean, she's just. <laughs> I, I would mean, be you, you kind of see her as sort of like a like a silly antagonist, but really she's just doing her job. She probably doesn't want to be there, but that's what you know she gets paid to do. Yeah, but she still sucks. Well, okay. She's got that, that that lady in every movie she's ever been in is like, like she's like, oh, I'm here to try to get this role as somebody who sucks. Yeah, I, I understand. I've been on, it's definitely a casting thing. And, you know, I, I doubt that the um, filmmakers were going this far, but I've been on the other side of that. And people do think that you suck, but you're just trying to make sure that their kids aren't going to starve to death. Yeah. Okay, look. All right. I hear you, but let's let me bring up another aspect of this. Um, okay, I will agree he was completely irrational and even delusional attempting this. Crazy is a simple way to put it. But don't you think that a lot of her motivation in getting rid of him was this hot new guy that was interested in her? Because the timing of it suggests that it was a factor. I think that this was something that had been going on for a really long time. And it was sort of frayed. It was at the breaking point. You mean their marriage? Their marriage, yes. In fact, when he, he compliments her at some point, I forget what he said. Who? Uh, Pierce Brosnan, I should learn his character's name, compliments Sally Field's character, Miranda, um, on something, I forget what it was, and she remarks offhand that it's been a long time since anybody complimented her or said something kind. Mm. Something to that degree. I can't remember the exact line. I think it was more that like she hadn't felt that way in a long time, not necessarily she that. She felt appreciated. Because I think that his that Daniel would have been very affectionate, but that it would have been mixed messages because she's, not. I mean, missed signals, like, He'd probably be like, you're so beautiful. And she's like, screw you. <laughs> but like it didn't, 
she respected. Yeah, I think he just sort of showed up. There's a whole bunch of things that happened at the exact same time that led to their divorce. It was a perfect storm. It was like an, the impetus she needed. Right. There was him losing another job. Yeah. And then there was him spending who knows how much money on this birthday party. <laughs> For real, that was so inexpensive. On top of losing his job, spending all this money they didn't need to spend. And eating her begonias. Yes, and eating her begonias. Um, you ate my begonias. And even and even that's symbolic of an intrusion on her, you know, personal boundaries, something that she's proud of. Her little idyllic part of her life. Yeah, just the part that she sort of reserves for herself. And then on top of that, um, you know, this this man that she had had an interest in her but kept his distance for a long time in the past suddenly showing up again and making suddenly very real to her this idea that there is this shadow life that she's always thought about that could suddenly become a reality. She doesn't have to put up with this. She's like, what if I hadn't married a man-child? Exactly. Um, So it was a perfect storm. All these things happened at the same time. And she came to the realization that, you know, maybe this uh, decision that I thought was impossible, why shouldn't I do it? But um, it's not until she comes home and she sees his complete and utter recklessness that she decides to pull the trigger in a yeah. moment of emotion. Yeah, it was this. Which which is very apparent. This moment of emotion is very uncharacteristic of her. She's very much self-controlled. There's only two times in the movie when she reacts that way. The first is the birthday party. And the second... <laughs> is his reveal in the restaurant. Is his reveal in the restaurant. <laughs> after he tried to... Which we should add is after he consciously tried to kill her boyfriend. Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> he put that, but he probably didn't think it would cause a deadly reaction. Well, that's that's the thing, though. A normal person <laughs> would see if someone says, I can't eat that because it will kill me. He didn't say that to the waiter. Well, did he? he just said he had an allergy. I he guess. said he had an allergy. But yes, most people would understand this person probably should never eat that because it might be deadly. <laughs> and so he not only goes in and puts some spice, he puts a lot of that spice on there to an unreasonable degree. Hey, he was drunk. Remember? Let's give him a pass. It's Robin Williams. So that, well, I don't know if you want to get into this, but that gets into Kantian philosophy also. Oh, no, it's that. So that's a type of philosophy. Okay, one aspect of the philosophy, it talks about motives, how consequences are meaningless. What's important is the person's motives. And so if the person's motives were good, it's sort of, or bad, it, it arose whatever the consequences actually were. So in this case... You could say, yeah, well, he survived, and and look what happened. I didn't say he survived. I just said he probably didn't think it would kill him. (laughs) And he was drunk. (laughs) I sounded Southern. And he was drunk. And he was drunk. So, you know, (laughs) I mean, how many of us haven't, you know, kissed a relative while we was drunk? Oh, no. Anyway, um, 
but that's a good indication right there of like his his complete and utter recklessness. He's unable to see. He's Dick. doing really, really well. He's doing really well. How? <laughs> no, I mean he he's, just like he's keeping. I mean, in his in his ongoing development, he's becoming more balanced, responsible. You see him at home. He's okay, actually cooking. in in Daniel's life. In Daniel's life, he's doing. He's cooking and cleaning and growing up. He's boundaried. And and what happens? He's he, doing okay. He's still he's, he's lying this, and he's pretending got, to be an old lady. He is, but, <laughs> but relatively speaking, relatively speaking, he's doing a lot better than he was before. When he was a freeloading he, right. loser of father. He's still lying, but I mean, he's at least 15%, 20% better than he was at that <laughs> period in time. But what happens? Um he he panics he panics because he comes to the realization that this is a permanent thing they're going to get married they're going to be together oh that was the night he announced it uh -huh. or is that i forgot about right. that and so he reverts back to his juvenile state or delusional where he's unable to think 5 minutes ahead of himself he's like well i'm going to go and screw with his food and give him his allergy and then suddenly when he's choking to death, when his throat seals up, he's like, oh, my God, what have I done? You know? Yeah, so he's not a psychopath. It takes someone <laughs> to almost die for him to realize what he's done, you know, and, and who he is to finally look at himself objectively. I don't think he would have done that if his mask didn't fall off and his boobs fell off or whatever. <laughs> well, no, it... it... <laughs> that just was a byproduct of him just like being a decent person because he is an ENFP after all. We do get a little crazy. No, he's not. That's the thing. He's not a wicked person, but he's unable to see consequences. Right. Right. That's that his, that his makes biggest sense. struggle. Yeah. He. Yeah. But it does speak to the delusions he's been having the whole time. Like, really, his motivations aren't just seeing his children he really was trying to get back with his wife yeah that that was i think it started out that way he, it was principally about his children and he, he wanted to be a family again he had this delusion that everything could be back to what it was but better and that just wasn't a possibility anymore any Anybody who was able to look at the situation with just basic cold logic would tell him, Daniel, this is not happening. But, you know. Um, but don't you think he would have been happy playing that role for years? He might have been. I mean, we don't know what would have happened because just before that, he accidentally shows up as Mrs. Doubtfire to speak with a producer and he tells him, yeah, this is the... He was drunk again. He was drunk. So he... <laughs> how would you justify that? They're going to see Mrs. Doubtfire on TV and then played by Daniel so-and-so. Well, he had to play it off. I understand his character, in which is a little disturbing to me. And you, too, because you're married to me. It's It's more than a little disturbing to me watching this movie as an adult. You know? Does he scare you? Be does he Is he mentally ill, in your opinion? Oh, he's... he's completely mentally ill <laughs> absolutely there's no doubt whatsoever <laughs> i don't see him as mentally ill i see him as delusional but not like insane but it is insane let's well, okay let's be honest that you don't see him as mentally ill <laughs> okay i guess that explains a lot of things <laughs> um 
what, what was what was I gonna say though about about his plan? Oh, one of the things I was just thinking popped into my mind is when you had commented earlier about her saying, you know, it'd been a long time since somebody complimented her. We haven't watched it in a while, so that may not have been exactly what she said. No, it's not exactly what she said. But I was remembering, remember that dinner scene where he like had the candles and he had burnt his boobs Mm -hmm. in the process of trying to make it nice and he ended up ordering takeout. Yeah. But like he genuinely wanted to see her happy. Remember? Like he he was happy to leave her with a nice dinner and candlelight and go home on the bus with his hairy legs and that bus driver who liked him. I think it was part of wanting to see her happy, but also wanting her approval. Like he needed that that hit because she, in that kind of relationship, she also took on this mom role. yeah like this Freudian you know maternal role as well. I think Ugh. it's a little bit of both. You're right. <laughs> he has mommy issues with her. I hadn't seen. You're right. What? Do, okay, now before we end this, what about the kids? What What do you think he was missing in, in attempting these shenanigans about their well-being? <laughs> that he's probably going to further mentally damage them. Um. <laughs> it's not funny, but it is. Yeah, clearly wasn't seeing the forest for the trees in that way either. Again, he probably had this fantasy in his head that, you know, as soon as they see that it's me, they're going to come around and then they're going to be my allies in trying to win over their mom. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's delusional on its own. He's treating them like they're adults, which to him, with a completely juvenile mind, they might be like adults to him. Well, it's it's more than just treating them like adults. He's ex- expecting them, like, to go along with his lies and lie to their mother, and basically forcing them to go on this crazy voyage with him, whether they want to or not. Because it's like, well, if you don't, then you're not going to get to see me anymore, and I won't get. You know what I mean? It's yeah, kind it's of coercion. Yeah, it's definitely manipulative. It's, yeah. Um, anyways, do you think they turned out okay after this? <laughs> um, well. <laughs> <laughs> they did get to visit him on set. At, at least one of them went to therapy, I imagine. Yeah. This must probably. be some, this is probably a very unique story. Yeah, my, uh, when my parents got divorced, my, my, my dad, uh, cross-dressed as an old English woman. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom was paying him to work for us and, and take I, care of us for months. And they saw his penis while he was standing <laughs> up dressed like that. And uh, and she tried to kill my he tried to kill my mom's fiance or stepfather. Her now step she tried to kill my stepdad at a her birthday dinner, which he actually invited her to. <laughs> I bet the only one who went to therapy was probably the little one because the older one is probably super repressed. She's and probably swallowed all her feelings. And screams at her children and and her husband in private while trying to maintain this, you know, facade of 
uh, I got it all together. And the second one, let's be honest, the guy, the boy, he probably ended up on meth. Well, that was a very bleak ending. I'm not <laughs> sure where both of those <laughs> scenarios came from, but... I'm just kidding. I don't hope that's true. I'm just saying, like, in today's world. <laughs> okay, not meth. They they were upper class. Okay, let's... The opiates. Opiate addiction. Okay, well... Um, I guess that sums up our brief conversation about Mrs. Doubtfire. You don't want to comment on the brothers? On the brothers. Oh, yeah. His brother. That's really interesting because his brother is such a stark contrast to him. Because you could say that his brother is living more authentically. He's not just openly gay. He's flamboyantly gay. But... <laughs> no, he's not gay. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, honey. <laughs> uh, I missed that. <laughs> the great Harvey Fierstein. But um, when he, he goes, can you make me a woman? Oh, honey, I'm so oh, happy. Honey, I'm so happy. I knew this day would come. <laughs> but um, at the same time, he also sort of lives in a kind of fantasy because he's they're, they're special effects artists. You know, they're makeup artists. Except... They're aware it's an illusion it's, and that it's a fantasy. Yeah, but they play, do they, they don't know I don't why think they, he's doing this, huh? No, they don't know why he's doing this. I think he sort of shows up. He's probably accustomed to his brother's eccentricity by this point in, in time. Yeah, but what does he think he's doing? I imagine he's used to his brother just showing up and saying, hey, I need like X, Y, and Z. This is the man that randomly ordered barn animals to be delivered to an upper scale neighborhood in... New York's yeah, in, that's in true. Francisco. And he was an actor, so for him, it's probably not. I mean, for his brother, it was probably like, oh, he He's needs for, it for he a needs part. It for something. Who knows? I'm sure there's a good reason. Remember that? Let's just can we just for a moment appreciate the brilliance of Robin Williams, though, in this movie? Oh, sure. I mean, in in that that montage he does with where he's Barbara Streisand and who else? Just those all those different characters he did was yeah, like, he's pure he, genius. He sings from Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I forget what else. But yeah, yeah. He made up some of those characters. But I, I think that what what gets through to people in this movie is his his intense, intensely vulnerable persona. I mean, like he is so you know, there's gotta there was so much pain in Robin Williams' actual life as we came to find out which I already had sensed under the surface. But, like, he brought a lot of himself into the role, so it was hard not to feel for him as crazy as he was. Yeah, and, and you know, when you hear interviews with people who knew him in real life, or recently I heard a Mark Marin interview that he did with him, um, that is pretty much who he was. He was sort of like this boy in the vessel of a man, and he had difficulty reconciling the, the two personas together. Um, and that led him to be very self-destructive at one point. And fortunately, he found a, a method through which he could channel all of this, this, this energy. Um, but you do see in his roles, it's kind of the same role, but on different ends of the spectrum, different parts of the spectrum, you know. 
there's a lighter end of it that you might see in a movie like Hook. And then in movies like Insomnia or, or One Hour Photo, you see the darker. You see connections in those movies? Absolutely. I see connections in all these movies. But um, with one, I, I guess I haven't, I haven't, I don't, I've seen Insomnia like one time when it came out and One Hour Photo I saw like one time. So I don't really remember it very well. But there was a kind of Peter Pan aspect to those too. There, there was, except um, in those, it was sort of um, like an insomnia specifically. I can't remember enough about one hour photo, but insomnia specifically, it's that he befriends this young high school girl and becomes her confidant, even though he's like 30 years older than she is. Yeah. And he feels, but it's not um, in this version, it's a remake of a, uh, I think it's a Scandinavian movie. Um, but in this version, there's not like a sexual aspect to the relationship. Thank he, God. He just genuinely feels that they're good friends. Um, like, you know, two 14 year olds might, might think of each other. And then she makes fun of him and she starts laughing at him and he gets mad and he strikes her. And when he strikes her, I forgot about that. He accidentally kills her. Oh yeah, Ew. and he's he's broken apart. And, and the movie is that he's extremely intelligent, but emotionally he's still like a child. And so it's it's kind of looking at the dark surface of how that might turn out in in people. And of course, at the other end of the spectrum, you have like his uh, mainstream movies, like you know Bicentennial Man and and. Um, and what have you. And they, they play up the lighter aspect of that. That somebody who doesn't lose touch with their innocence. And because of that, they're able to compel jaded hearts to, you know, give something a try that benefits everybody else. To take a risk that, that makes their lives better. You know, like Goodwill Hunting. It kind of is that mentor doing that for him. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was very interesting. Uh, anything else? No, that's it. Well, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, realquacks at gmail.com. Talk to you later.